0: Greetings, film pals. I bid you welcome to The Cinematic Crypt, a motion picture podcast hosted by Movie John's old sport and classic coroner Rosalie Kicks, otherwise known as Betzina Belfry. Each episode, I travel six feet under and pry open a coffin of one of my favorite Hollywood corpses and perform a post-watch examination of one of their forgotten films. Lend me your ears and listen along as I summon the spirits of Hollywood's dearly departed and uncover your next favorite film from the grave. Before we descend into the crypt, I will begin with reading my obituary, a notice of what I have been up to since we last spent time together. Goblins, ghouls, and creepies, I hope that your holiday season was merry and bright. If you had a chance to listen to the Cryptmas special featuring fantastic guest Dracula Elvis, and enjoyed it, I have some spectacular news for you, creepies. On February 13th, I'll be flying to Gravesland, Tennessee, and dropping by the DJ booth to spin some tunes under the pale moonlight that are sure to put a spell on you. I'll be playing some of my favorite romantical tunes that are sure to get you in the mood for Valentine's Day. Join your favorite movie host, me, Batsina Belfry, for a trip to the Tunnel of Love for the first-ever Cinematic Crypt, Love Bites, Valentine Special. Who knows who will be summoned for an appearance? From Dracula Elvis to Bella Lugosi, the possible corpse appearances are endless. Cinematic Crypt, Love Bites, Valentine Special will air February 13th.
1: It's so scary, we dare you to see The Monsters Crash the Pajama Party, the first movie ever filmed in Horror Vision, Hollywood's latest miracle. You'll scream as fiendish movie monsters actually become alive, then crash right out of the screen, go into the audience and carry screaming girls from their seats right back into the picture to become part of the movie. We warn you, Horror Vision is not 3D. The movie monsters become real flesh and blood. Be sure to see The Monsters Crash the Pajama Party in Horror Vision
0: and color. creepies. You may have noticed that I am not climbing out of the coffin as often. This is due to a very important project that I've been toiling away on, known as the grand, fantastical, possibly even magical, escape to become film. This is a highly demanding endeavor that I'm undertaking and will be sharing more details as they progress. In the meantime, you can follow along in the return of my long-lost e-newsletter, Sunday Matinee, which will be delivered to your electronic mailbox occasionally on a Sunday afternoon. The first one is set to hit the post this Sunday, January 15th, so make sure you subscribe at Substack. I will post a subscription link in the show notes for those interested. I've also made some plans to get back in the laboratory and conduct some experiments. My darling dolls have missed my presence and are eager to attempt a seance and maybe even get back to learning some manners. With all of this said, you may have noticed that instead of a bi-weekly format, I'm moving to a monthly release of my podcast. Please make sure to mark your calendar and be prepared to descend into the crypt on the 13th of each and every month, under the pale moonlight, of course. Lastly, I wanted to mention that with my commitment to sobriety, I have been on the hunt for ways to cope with the world around me. One of those ways is reading. I have found devouring books as a wonderful escape to the dreary aspects of life, and I love visiting some of my favorite dead guys and gals. A recent discovery was silent film star Clara Bow. I just finished Clara Bow Running Wild from David Stein, and it has piqued my interest of watching some of her films. I will start with her most well-known, the 1927 silent, It. I will be sure to report back, if not here, then on my newsletter, Sunday Matinee. Sunday Matinee is a great place to stay up to date on my latest thrills, chills, and schemes. I will be sharing updates from my laboratory, my escape plan, and a sprinkling of sweet stuff. Visit substack.com and search Sunday Matinee and that is S-U-N-D-A-E, matinee. Or visit moviejohn.com under MJ Pods on the Cinematic Crypt page to have this newsletter delivered to your mailbox. To sender. To sender.
2: I gave a letter to the pole. small mm-hmm.
0: heard the intro theme to Big Chuck and Little John, a horror hosting duo hailing from Cleveland, Ohio. Before we get to our main attraction, let's take a walk in the cemetery, shall we? Join me, creepies, on a trip to the graveyard to pay respects to horror hosts from days gone by in a segment I've entitled Grave Time. No gimmicks, no castles, no capes. They were simply Big Chuck and Little John. Charles Shadowski, otherwise known as Chuck, was a tall statuesque man measuring six foot and two inches tall, while his co-host John Rinaldi stood at four foot three inches. If they sound familiar, you may remember them from episode 28, in which I discussed famed horror host Goulardi. Ghost Connection. Chuck got his start with Goulardi, aka Ernie Anderson, on Shock Theater and remained part of the program until 1966. However, in 1963, Chuck auditioned for a new show with Bob Wells, known as Houlihan the Weatherman. The studio enjoyed the banter between the two, and the Houlihan Big Chuck Show was born. After Wells left the show in 1979, John Rinaldi, a jewelry store owner, took over as co-host, and until 2008, Big Chuck and Little John had their own program on WJKW TV, Cleveland, Ohio, showing horror movies at noon and 11:30 p.m. every Saturday. The
1: legendary Goularty to appear in just a couple of skits, but when Ernie took off for Hollywood, this shy guy was asked to co-host the show with Hulahan.
2: Mark that, so Stanley. <laughs> <laughs>
3: the only reason i consented to do this thing with to be co-host with Woolahan was because i figured we're gonna bomb how could you fill Gallardi's shoes
1: he filled those shoes and also filled that famous sweater used in all of the skits featuring the certain ethnic guy
3: he was disgusted when he pulled a kielbasa from his shirt that was a real popular sweater at least in my neighborhood in polish neighborhood <laughs> so everyone had sweaters like that big chuck Hanging
1: up that sweater, retiring from what evolved into the Big Chuck and Lil John Show.
2: We're really, really, really good friends, believe it or not, after all these years. It's like a marriage we had. I mean, I saw him more than I saw my wife.
0: They would perform comedy skits during their program, many of which would be TV parodies of the shows of that time. Their program was in front of a live studio audience, and at the end of each skit, a very distinct laugh could be heard. (laughs) The owner of that laugh was a DJ in the Cleveland area, Jay Lawrence. Something interesting to note is that Chuck and John didn't have a typical horror host vibe. They didn't wear macabre clothing or don fangs. Instead, they wore denim, sweaters, and the occasional zany fabric print. They often made their own sets and props as they didn't have a formal budget for the program. The two would host the show from movie set-style chairs, and many of their skits were pre-recorded in off-site locations. Before playing the film, they would comment on it but also take questions from the audience. As for the films, they showed Universal Monster and Sci Fi Fair, and the occasional Sherlock Holmes featuring Basil Rathbone and other creature features. They also ensured to feature some of Cleveland's eccentrics and unusual talents, such as a teen boy that could imitate a frog by slurping jello, or Mushmouth, who was known to be able to cram an entire pizza in their mouth in seconds. The show is not for everyone and often was described as corny. Regardless of whether this program is your cup of tea or not, they still earn a place on our horror host mantle.
1: Chuck Shadowski's career didn't begin with a hit like this, but rather with a series of misses like these. Chuck was a behind-the-scenes guy at Channel 8 when Ernie Anderson, the immortal Goulardi, told Chuck to be in a skit as a batting coach for the hapless Cleveland Indians. Just hit away there and show us some of the... Maybe.
3: But I never wanted to be on television. He literally forced me on television.
1: The kid from East 71st and Harvard, the South High grad, suddenly doing comedy skits
3: in high school, I could, I could not even get up to do a book report. I was terrified. I mean, I did it, but man, I worried about it for weeks. Will somebody answer that telephone over there? In 1966,
1: Ernie Anderson, the biggest phenomenon in Cleveland TV history, takes off for Hollywood. The station pairs Chuck with Houlihan the weatherman. A team is born, Big Chuck and Houlihan.
3: I was so scared, but I figured it wasn't going to last uh, 13 weeks anyway. so. How long does it last? uh, uh, 44 years, actually. (laughs) 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 The longest-running show in the history of TV.
4: And now, our feature presentation.
0: All right, film pals. Time to grab your cape and get uncomfortable. It is time for our regularly scheduled spooky program. Follow me, but watch your step as you descend down to the cinematic crypt.
4: <laughs>
0: Today's episode will mark the first entry in the series Double Trouble. Over the course of this series, I will examine four flicks in which there is not one, but two characters that the actor portrays. No need for the double take. Your eyes did not deceive. When it is double trouble, it is sure to be twice as fun. I will kick things off with the 1946 motion picture, A Stolen Life, directed by Curtis Bernhardt and starring Betty Davis, Glenn Ford, Dane Clark, and Charles Ruggles. Creepies. You may recall that in a previous Cinematic Crypt, Episode 12, I uncovered the corpse of Betty Davis in the 1951 film Another Man's Poison. I am absolutely thrilled to have Betty joining us in the crypt once again as the corpse of interest. Now let's start the examination, shall we? A Stolen Life is a drama film that Betty not only played two parts, but also served as the film's producer. The story itself is based on the 1935 novel of the same title by Carol Joseph Bennis, and is a remake of the 1939 British film, also of the same name. It tells the story of two sisters, Kate and Patricia Bosworth. After Kate's sister drowns, she assumes the identity of Patricia so that she is able to get closer to a long lost love that her sister so ruthlessly stole from her years ago. Betty Davis assumes both roles of Kate and Patricia, while Glenn Ford plays the love interest Bill Emerson and Charles Ruggles is sister's cousin Freddie. The film opens with Kate missing her boat that was to take her to the seaside island off of New England. Fortunately for her, she is able to hitch a ride with a dashing young man. I beg your pardon. Are you going over to the island tonight? I missed the
5: steamer.
2: Well, that'll teach you not to be late.
5: Well, could you tell me whether or not you're going anywhere near it?
2: I'm going to the island, but I don't take any passengers. It's against the rules.
5: Oh, I'd be very indebted to you. My cousin's expecting me on the steamer. Please, I promise I won't be any trouble.
2: Can't you see I'm full cool up? I go those lines, Tom.
0: I'm not very large.
2: Well, Okay, I'll be
0: Oh, thank you. It is here that I not only discovered my affinity for smoking pipes, but also decided that I need to obtain one post-haste. Glenn Ford looks extremely dapper with this pipe, And more importantly, it adds a sort of mystique, especially with the backdrop of the sea. It is quite obvious that the demure, Kate, is smitten with the charming sailor. It is also learned that she is an artist. While en route to the island to meet her sister and cousin, she sketches a rather lovely portrait of Bill. From the moment she departs the boat, Kate is on a mission to seek her mystery man once again. In learning that Bill works at a lighthouse with a fellow Evan Folger, Kate sets sail and offers to paint a portrait of him.
2: I said no visitors.
5: I know you did.
2: You're the one who wanted to paint me, ain't you? That's right. Well, I told you then I didn't hanker after it, and I don't now.
5: Oh, but you see, I came for a different reason.
2: Well, talk.
5: I understand you're an expert with ship models. In fact, the only one who knows whether they're genuine or not.
2: Don't make sense.
5: I know it's a great imposition, Mr. Folger. But you see, I don't know a great deal about antiques. And I don't like the idea that... I may have been rooked.
2: Well, I don't rightly know as
3: I'm a judge.
5: Oh, won't you look at it, Mr. Folger? I understand it's part of a set.
2: Maybe. Evan. uh... Well, hello.
5: Why, hello?
2: Oh, you be the one he brunk from the mainland?
5: Yes. You see, Mr. Folger, I want to start a collection.
2: I get the rest of the set, so... Uh... Now, you're pretty smart for a woman. Now, just a minute. Just what are you aiming for out here?
1: Look out, Eben. She's a Yankee.
0: <laughs> I want to strike a bargain with you. What kind? I adore Betty's eyes in this scene. I'm sure, my dear Cryptes, you have heard of evil eyes, maybe even a furry eye. Well, this particular glare that Betty wields in this scene is known as a scheming eye. You can just tell she is up to something, and that something being finding a way to Bill's heart. Betty's character of Kate may seem shy, but I see her as rather confident For one, she takes a sailboat out on her own to track down a guy that she's interested in, and then devises a way, kind of an elaborate plan actually, in which she can snag his heart. Kate, well, and Betty for that matter, had moxie. At one point, when she goes to paint Eben, she ends up getting stuck at the lighthouse due to fog rolling in. There is a beautiful moment shared between Kate and Bill, and I have to tell you, I absolutely love fog in film. It just adds such a wonderful and spooky atmosphere.
5: I'm glad I didn't try to go back in this.
2: Did fog frighten you? Hello.
4: There's
5: something so terribly lonely about it. I don't mind being alone, but I don't like to feel lonely.
4: There's a difference, isn't there? You
2: know, I don't mind being alone either. In fact, I deliberately took this job here to get away from too many people.
5: I can understand that.
2: You wouldn't be afraid of that fog if you went right out into it. Come on, I'll show you.
0: From here, Kate and Bill start spending time together, and their romance is very much a whirlwind. Now, at this point, we have not yet been introduced to Kate's sister, Patricia. In fact, she doesn't make an appearance in the movie until about the 25-minute mark. From the moment Patricia shows up on screen, it is rather easy to see the type of character she is. I'd have to imagine that Betty enjoyed these parts because they were so drastically different of characters. We learn that Pat is very curious about the person her sister Kate has been spending time with. One day, while in the village, she happens to run into this mystery man who mistakes Pat for Kate. And well, here's the first moment of double trouble.
2: I'm gonna meet somebody here for lunch at 12 (laughs) o'clock. Ain't noon yet. Habit. Yeah, there she is now.
6: By God, pretty good-looking, ain't she?
2: You? you know I don't go out with bad-looking gals, Lou. <laughs> Hello.
5: Good morning. Katie,
2: wait a minute. You, did you forget about our luncheon date?
5: No. I didn't forget.
2: Looks like you walked right by me.
5: How could you think I'd forget? I have to send a message out to the hunky-dory. I'll be right back. you tell Mr. Fraser I can't possibly come out for lunch today? Yes, Miss Bart. Tell him I'm dreadfully sorry. All right. Thanks. Well, now we can go to lunch.
2: You know, for a minute, I thought you were going to stand me up there.
5: Oh, you know I
0: would do that. Unlike her sweet and kind sister, Kate, Patty is clearly a manipulator and obviously up to no good. While she pretends to be Kate, she manages to bewitch Bill, and he is, of course, seeing who he thinks Kate is in an entire new light. There is also mention of him leaving town for a bit due to a new gig, and to no surprise, Pat takes note of this. Now, something you may be wondering creepies, is how, in fact, did two Betties appear to be on screen at the same time? The obvious answer is cloning. Just kidding, goblins and ghouls. Instead, special effects were utilized in order to create the illusion that two Betties appear on screen simultaneously. We all know the only one that knows how to do any cloning, of any sort, is Mickey Mouse, of course. But that's a tale for another day. As for the special effects in the movie, they can be credited to Willard Van Enger and Russell Collins. These technicians actually received a nomination at the 19th Academy Awards for their work on A Stolen Life. They would, however, lose out to the fantasy ghost story, Blythe Spirit, a film you may recall from episode 23 of the cinematic, Crypt. Much of the effects that were pioneered in A Stolen Life were later used in other films, such as The Parent Trap in 1961, and then in the unofficial remake of A Stolen Life, the 1964 picture Dead Ringer, also starring Betty Davis. In conducting further research about this special effect, it appears to have dated back to first being utilized in the silent era. One can witness in the George Melius film, in which the French illusionist director created four moving versions of his head in one frame in the famed motion picture, The Four Troublesome Heads. This was achieved through the use of multiple exposure of the objects on a black background of film. Through the use of multiple exposures, the director is able to superimpose them to create one single image. Later, in films such as A Stolen Life or The Parent Trap, the scene would be shot twice with an actor and a stand-in. Then, they would switch places. Later, the two strips of film would be combined into one. To help disguise the seam of where the film had been cut, filmmakers would make use of items in the background, such as a door frame. Other ways to give the illusion that there are two Bettys was by utilizing an over-the-shoulder shot, where the actor would speak to their stand-in from behind. Of course, it should be noted that any time in which the twins interact with another at the same time was no easy feat to accomplish. Often, a lot of time would be invested in such shots and they would last a mere seconds in the overall picture. Later, this special effect would evolve due to the innovations from the film Star Wars. One can witness the progress of this technology in viewing the 1988 David Cronenberg film Dead Ringers, starring Jeremy Irons.
2: You got me going around in circles, Katie.
0: In circles?
2: I don't know if I can explain it. Look, you're... you're a swell person. I always knew that, but... Well, it it seems that there was just something lacking. Uh, Maybe I can explain it, explain it this way. It's like you were a cake. A cake? Yes, a a cake uh, without any frosting. And I guess most guys, they kind of like the frosting.
4: You know what I mean?
5: Today, you think I'm well-frosted. (laughs)
4: say <laughs> What are you giggling about?
5: Uh, not thinking I was frosted.
2: I was never more fooled in my life.
0: Hopefully that little film education does not have you going in circles, goblins and ghouls. When Pat shows up on Bill's train that is headed to Boston, it's easy to see that she is a dangerous woman.
4: Hello. Boston papers candy, ruby, all of Boston flavors. Hello. Which one is it?
5: You know. Yes.
4: I know. How did you get here?
5: Flew over. Lots of people have to go to Boston.
0: It does not take long for Pat to put her hooks into Bill, and eventually the two announce their intention to marry, which, of course, absolutely devastates Kate. There is a scene at the wedding that I quite enjoy in which Pat attempts to throw the bouquet of flowers to Kate, and, well, Kate just blatantly steps out of the way, pleased as punch that Pat sees her once again, those Betty Davis eyes for the win. Heartbroken and downtrodden, Kate fights off her misery the only way she knows how, and that is pouring herself into her work. When she showcases her portraits at an art gallery, in walks Karnak, played by Dane Clark, who quite frankly my creepies, is one of the rudest fellas I ever did meet in cinema. He shows up at Kate's opening, not interested in her artwork, but instead more intrigued by the free food and beverage. With a quick chat, Kate learns that he is a fellow artist as well.
5: What's your name?
3: Karnak.
0: Haven't you any
5: other name? One's good enough. If you dislike me so intensely, why did you ask me to come up and look at your work?
2: You asked me. And now that you've done me the great honor of praising my work, I suppose I'll have to start praising
3: yours.
5: What's wrong with my work?
3: Everything.
2: Chiefly because you're what you are, stiff, ingrown, afraid. I bet you're not even a woman. I know your kind. Someone way back in your family was clever enough to make a lot of money, and then his son made some more. And then his son had a great problem of learning how to spend it. And that's probably been going on ever since. So here you are, the last gasp of the line, dabbling away at being an artist with a capital A.
0: I guess the old adage of misery loves company rings true as the two start to spend time together, not in a romantical way, but more of a way to wallow in their sorrows sort of relationship. Many don't see the appeal of Carnock, including Kate's cousin Freddie. And well, honestly, I agree with Freddie. The man is absolutely no. How
2: are you progressing, Kate? Oh, I'm not. Oh, my. are you teaching her?
5: <laughs> Freddie, you certainly show your ignorance when you make a remark like that.
2: That's all right, Kate. I'd like to hear what he has to say. Thank you. I, um, I'm just curious to know if that's an I. I know it's in the right place for an eye. It's got to be an eye. But is it? Yes, it's an eye. Now, will you run along and have your tea? And when you're in the mood, we can go back to work. Well, I guess that just about confirms everything I've heard.
5: What do you mean, Freddy?
2: Rumors have been circulating that you are under the influence of a sort of a Rasputin of the paint pots.
0: When Bill comes to town unexpectedly, Kate sees the effects that Pat had on him. No longer is Bill a dreamer. Instead, he is driven by money and he wheels a briefcase. During an awkward trip to the department store, in which Bill has Kate picking out lingerie for her sister, he informs her of an upcoming business trip to Chile. A couple weeks later, to Kate's surprise, she discovers Pat, does not accompany Bill on this trip and instead drops by for a visit.
5: Oh, I I read about your exhibition at the Gruen Gallery. I suppose I should have run down to see it. Not that I know a thing about art. I couldn't tell a Rembrandt from a Renoir. Katie, don't tell me you're smoking these days. Pat, why couldn't you go to Chile? I had a perfectly dreadful cold, something like the flu. What a shame. Bill was so excited about your going. Bill's so naive about a lot of things. But that's Bill. Naive days I've been trying to live with all the time. Katie, don't you want to go upstairs? You haven't said a word about my dungarees. I'm getting to be a big outdoors girl now, learning to sail and all that sort of nonsense. That I want to see. <laughs> I'll prove it to you.
0: Kate's kind of shocked that Pat even wants to go sailing. Well, creepies, if you did not realize, this sailing adventure doesn't go very well. As the weather gets worse, the two decide to head to the lighthouse. In En route, Pat falls overboard, and while Kate tries to grasp her hand, the wedding ring slips right off of Pat's finger and onto Kate's. That's some movie magic, creepies. <laughs> exciting! And well, to my sheer delight, we have a corpse on our hands. Which means only one thing. Time for a trip to the morgue. Crypt dwellers, it is time for our spooky intermission of sorts. Let's pay a visit to the morgue, shall we? To chat cadavers with my fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers. Together, we will slice open and examine character actor Charles Ruggles an actor who specialized in playing eccentric and unusual people. Let's all go to the mark.
4: Let's all go to the mark.
0: Oh, come in. Come in. Just, just watch your step over here. Did I catch you in the middle of something, old chap?
6: Oh, yeah, it's nothing. I'm, I'm just trying some new cloning experiment.
0: Did you say cloning?
6: Yeah, you heard that correctly. You see, I've figured out a process to create an exact genetic replica of another cell, tissue, or organism. So, in this case, well, I needed a lab assistant and, well, I mean, who knows my way of working better than I do? I
0: see. So, there will be two doctors. Two Dr. Carruthers. Two Dr. Carruthers. Ah, ah, ah. Wow. I don't know if we're ready for this. You'll, you'll have to be. Well, I do know a thing or two about cloning myself. It is a most excellent venture, as long as you don't get into too much mischief. Reminds me, old chap, did you catch the flick A Stolen Life? I did. Wonderful. So, are you up for a guest this evening, or are you too busy?
6: Oh, no, most certainly. I always look forward to our guests. Well, almost always. It's not... You didn't bring
0: K again, did you? No, no, no. He's been put back into the ground. He's safe and secure. Okay, good. The person I brought, they're waiting in the car. Let me just drag them in. Okay, great. I'll put the kettle on. So with me today, Doctor, is a specimen from a flick that I'm discussing on tonight's crypt. It's Charles Ruggles from A Stolen Light. <laughs> hello
2: folks hey charlie charlie boy uh, uh, uh what is it what is it wake up and say hello to folks <laughs> oh <laughs> wow hello <laughs> we're just waiting here to see debbie i'm walter brendon he's charlie Ruggles. you know uh, we're sort of to debbie charlie played the uh, grandpa in one picture and i played a grandpa in the other picture see <laughs> uh, well i've been pretty busy doing amos mccoy in the, the, the tv series the real mccoys and charlie here he's been pretty busy uh uh what have you been busy doing, Shirley? Uh, well, I, I... Oh, yeah, he's busy uh, with the Broadway plays in the movies, you see. <laughs> oh. But when our little Debbie asked us if we'd come and, and visit with her, why, we just jumped at the chance. Because she's one of our favorite right people. Yes, sweetest little thing. Just sweet as apple cider. Yes. <laughs> and I'll tell you another thing. Anybody that knows Debbie knows you can't say no to her. Ain't that right, Charles? I think that's <laughs> So here me. we are.
4: See?
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, are you finished? Hmm? Have you finished, Walter? Uh, well and how, how who who made you the spokesman? What do you mean, sir? I mean, how did you get to be the main grandfather? Well, somebody had to do the talking. We were just sitting here snoozing. Who wants to watch two old men sleeping? Except maybe two old ladies?
4: Ah, <laughs> oh, my.
2: my the noisy one,
4: aren't you? I could have told him who we are and why
2: we're here just as well as you, you know. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead what? Go ahead and tell him that I'm Walter Brennan and you're Charlie Ruggles and uh, we're both here because we're so fond of our little Debbie. Yeah, there you see, you did it again. Now I've got nothing to say. Nothing to say? You mean to tell me the man's been in show business as long as you have? All he's got to say to an audience is, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Charlie Ruggles and this here's Walter oh, Brennan. Wait wait, 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 wait wait, a minute. I'm Charlie Ruggles. You're, I wouldn't be Walter Brennan for 20 minutes. <laughs> All right, you want to talk? Go ahead and talk. Yeah, what about now? You've said everything. What about? Tell him a story. Yes, I... Tell him that story you told you just before you fell asleep here. Oh, wait a minute. I can't sit here and start telling a story. We oh, Well, what's can... the matter? You need introduction or no, something? No. I'll I... introduce you. I don't Ladies need and any... gentlemen, I'm Walter Brennan, and this here is Charlie. No, yeah, we know, we know. Well, I'm sick of it, personally. <laughs> All right, go ahead, tell your story. Go ahead, tell it yourself. Which one do you want me to tell? Well, you know the one about the Martians coming down into Hollywood. Oh, that one. Oh, well. <laughs> well, it seems, ladies and gentlemen, that there was a spaceship, you see, that landed in Hollywood, and one of the Martians got out, and as he that's the one. That's and first the the... he says, "First, take me to your Marilyn Monroe, then take me to your leader." <laughs> I wish you'd go to your leader, I'll tell you that.
6: (laughs) Oh, yes. Well, scalpel, please. Let's begin with discussing the five characteristics that made this particular corpse a character. Number one, distinctive mannerisms. Number two, his fluttery or tongue-tied line delivery. Number three, his befuddled look. Number four, mild-mannered yet comedic. And number five, a slight stature
0: in a stolen life charles plays cousin freddie Lindley, and i have to say i adored this old sport not only did he have a no-nonsense personality but he also had a great sense of style in this film one of my favorite ensembles was his robe and kerchief
6: ah nice choice you know i noticed the same thing he's definitely a snappy dresser And I also love how he was an appreciator of the arts, as he was already scoping out locations for Kate to paint before she even arrived.
0: Oh yes, that's very true. And he was very encouraging of her work. Yes. I quite enjoyed how a matter-of-fact he was with Kate about her sister saying such things as, must you always let that sister of yours get ahead of you? I... Again, I just love how he encourages Kate to really fight for Bill, and without a doubt, he liked Kate more than Pat.
3: Want
2: to take a drive? It's a fine night. Can I get you some coffee? You can sit here while you drink it. Oh, for heaven's sake, say something. This isn't like you. If he means that much to you fight for him I can't Well, then you certainly won't get him if you don't Why don't you cry and get it out of your system Must you always let that sister of yours get ahead of you
4: Ready
6: Take me home. Yeah, I agree. And really, I don't blame him. I I really loved how he was such a good friend to her. Like for instance at the dance, you know, he asks her to dance, he tries to distract her from just being tortured by seeing Pat and what's his face together. And I feel like he sees Kate's worth more than she even does. And then, it's kind of similar later on at Pat's wedding, he checks in on Kate, which is very sweet. But I have a question. Did you get a queer vibe from him? It Maybe it's just me longing for a queer character and everything, but I felt like he wasn't just your typical old bachelor character.
0: You know, honestly, I guess I didn't really think about it much, but now that you say it, it does kind of make sense. Um, we never really see him interacting with anyone except for kate i feel like he has a few scenes with the sister mm-hmm. he's definitely a character that leaves me wanting to know more about him yes definitely like i find him just so he's interesting mm-hmm. like i don't really know exactly what he does but i do love his house and i was thinking while watching the movie how i would love to stay with charles oh definitely. While conducting my research on him, I came across something that I thought you would be intrigued by. Before taking to the stage, he was actually training to be a doctor. Oh, you don't say. A brother of the old Hippocratic Oath. Yes, and I guess he found this path to being an actor or a performer more interesting. Uh, I know you may not understand that, but I think he got a thrill from being on the stage, and he would go on to have a career in Tinseltown for more than 50 years with over 100 screen credits. I enjoyed learning that his film debut in 1914 was actually in a silent movie, The Patchwork Girl of Oz. I recently just finished reading Three Oz Tales, and Wow, it left me questioning whether these were meant for children. There was some rather creepy stuff in there. Oh, okay, I want to see that movie now. I love
6: Oz books, and you're right, they're definitely wild. It's what a world of imagination.
0: Yes, I actually, I too am interested in watching some of these old silent Oz flicks. Apparently there's a number of them, and I was able to find a few on YouTube, oh, so check them out. yes. Yes, and I think what really creeped me out while reading the books was I finally learned the story about the Tin Man, and let's just say my life was forever changed and a bit of my soul was taken. Well, as long as your heart's still there, you're good. Hey, Tin Man joke, hey. So, as for Charlie, what did you enjoy most about him? Mm, That's a good question.
6: I think my favorite thing about him is just, like, his manner. He seems soft-spoken, very approachable. I feel like he would have been a comforting presence on set.
0: Oh, definitely, I agree. And apparently one of his trademarks was the line, Oh my my my. And I don't recall whether he says this line in A Stolen Life or not, but I do feel at times he did kind of give off a bit of an anxious energy. And I don't feel he ever bought the idea of Kate being Patricia when she tried to pull the switcheroo. He definitely was on top of things. No, I I
6: agree. I, I feel like you can almost see it in his eyes, but like in a very understated way. It wasn't like a big over the top gesture, like a pretend light bulb over his head. It's just a very subtle look on his face where you can kind of see he's thinking, mm, I don't know about this. I also appreciated that he didn't just like instantly call her out because he knew that, you know, this was her problem to figure out, not his.
0: Yeah, definitely. and. I feel that with twins, there's always at some point they probably pull a switcheroo. I mean, I'm not a twin, but I'd have to imagine it would be something I would have done. I mean, I don't know how you feel, but. Oh, definitely, yeah. Speaking of which, an all-time classic switcheroo flick. One of your faves, I know, is The Parent Trap, which is another flick that Charlie makes an appearance in. He plays the twins' grandpa.
6: Yes, yeah, so that's definitely where I know him from the best, since I watched that movie probably 400 times as a child. (laughs) And he also figures out in that flick that the girl switched. And I always found it kind of odd that he figured it out, but the parents didn't. Way to go, mom and dad. You're such attentive parents that you have an entire different human that you think is one person and it's not your own child. But I have a question for you.
0: Were you ever friends with twins? You know, I'd have to probably say friends, no, but I do recall there was actually, twins in my grade in the school that essentially I went from kindergarten to 10th grade in. Oh, however, okay. however, they were, um, I believe the proper term is fraternal, because okay. one identified as a boy, one as a girl, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they didn't really get mixed up often. But I also remember in probably a grade ahead of me, there were triplets. and. Oh. Those three girls, people often confused. Uh, I just remember tales of people confusing them, but they were not in my grade. Oh, okay. I was friends, very good friends,
6: with twins. And they were total rascals as kids. So they were identical twins. They dressed the same until they were teenagers. So like when they were teenagers, for sure you could tell them apart, but as kids, Wearing the same clothes, the only thing that they did was wear different colored socks. So I'd say, okay, this one's wearing green socks, this one's wearing blue socks. That's how I tell them apart. But they'd often switch their socks, which was rude, and also, ew, that's gross. But those
0: twins, rascals. Was the matching of clothes their idea, or was this something the parents were enforcing? Oh, that, that was the parents. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't. I don't know if I would like that. You know. I no. think I'd want my own identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, growing up, though, I will say, because my brother and I are so close in age, there was a period of time where people thought we were twins. Ooh, interesting. Yes. I don't think I'd want to be identical to someone yeah it's it's very interesting but i'm sure it could come in handy you know i i hear stories of when twins will you know have their twin substitute for them like to take a test or something like that you could get into a lot of trouble
6: or you could marry your twins fella
0: (laughs) (laughs) yes which i guess back to the movie so Another little fun fact that I love about Charlie is that he was an animal lover. Apparently, he and his second wife amassed 94 pets. And during the 30s and 40s, he operated a kennel business. And this all actually happened because he grew tired of the deplorable state that he saw other kennels. I guess, you know, when he went to go board his dog due to film work. And so he created what he referred to as a hotel for dogs to ensure that pups had adequate and healthy living like they'd experience at home. And I found an ad for his kennel in which it reads, catering to canine whims. And I decided I love the word whims. Uh, Of course you love the word whims.
6: That's pretty amazing. It, It sounds like you're kindred spirits with old Chuck.
0: Yes, I mean, especially with the way we treat our pup, little Foxy, I mean, she has a rocker, a robe, wigs yes i i agree i i I do think it's interesting too because he never had kids so these pets must have been really treated like royalty oh the best i'm sure many hollywood folks left their pups at his kennel including barbara Stanwyck, kay francis and errol flynn wow that's amazing
6: i i do wonder if the doggos had a screening room to watch their family on film while they were away.
0: Maybe. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I'm imagining there were pools, <laughs> treats were like free-flowing, <laughs> robes, cigars, everything. Wigs. <laughs> yes. Not to be a downer, but I'm a bit of a white rabbit today, and I need to be hopping off soon. But I can't leave without knowing how Charlie departed this mortal realm. Well, Ruggles
6: died of cancer at St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica, California on December 23, 1970 at the age of 84. He is interred at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale, California in the Garden of Memory near his brother, Wesley Ruggles.
0: Ah, yes, Wesley. It should be mentioned, he too was in the Hollywood Picture Racket. He worked as a silent film actor and then later a director. And as for Charles, I'm very happy he ended up at Forest Lawn Cemetery. As he once said when someone asked of his future plans, Forest Lawn, I guess, after you've played everything I have, there ain't no more. Well, you did it, Charles. You
6: ended up right where you wanted. I think it's time now to grab the blankies.
0: Yes, so sleep well, Charles. I hope you are with a gaggle of pups in the most comfiest of robes.
6: Yes, it was lovely visiting, Mr. Ruggs. I hope you have an endless supply of tobacco and peppermint.
0: Well, old chap, I bid you adieu. And who knows, maybe I'll see you next time. Or maybe it will be your clone. However will you tell?
6: You shall have to wait and see. Nighty night. Good night. (laughs) Classic.
2: And now, on with the show.
0: Welcome back, my creepies. I hope you enjoyed that brief intermission to the morgue. We return for the conclusion of my examination of a stolen life starring betty davis and glenn ford
2: ever since it happened you've been lying here crying for bill over and over again You keep saying i tried to save her well bill ain't gonna blame you miss emerson you gotta get that through your head you gotta look at it this way if the good lord had wanted to take you instead of her way He'd have done it. I was real fond of your sister. Guess I didn't show it much, but but it was. But Bill always loved you, never her. Maybe that's why you was spared. There ain't no arguing the will of the Lord.
0: Kate wakes up with a ring on her finger, and well, mistaken for Pat. And instead of correcting anyone, She decides to just run with it. With Bill about to return, this is her chance to finally live the dream. Or is it? Kate soon discovers which of the Bosworth sisters is truly worth keeping around. And hint, hint, the name doesn't start with P. Now, I could tell you how this all gets resolved, but I think this is where I will leave you, my creepies. For I feel that you should experience the rest of this film firsthand. Some other interesting tidbits about this movie is that it would go on to relaunch Glenn Ford's career, along with another small picture he made in 1946, you may have heard of it, the famed noir, Linda. Prior to the making of these two films, Glenn had spent two years in the U.S. Marines during World War II. Without a doubt, these two pictures really helped to jumpstart his career again in Hollywood. Now, if you remember from earlier, Betty had served as a producer on the film A Stolen Life, so she was involved with hiring the writer and director, but she was also involved with making casting decisions, and it can be credited to Betty that Glenn even got the part, as she demanded the casting of him despite him being under contract with Columbia Pictures even under the protest of Jack Warner, she conducted a secret screen test with Ford, and this would inevitably convince Jack Warner to hire Glenn and pay Columbia for the loan out. During this time, Betty had been pleading with Jack Warner for better productions and atmosphere on set. A Stolen Life would be her first and only time producing due to the toll it took on her. Even with leaving the day-to-day work to others, she still found her job to be quite stressful due to her obligations as actor. At the time of filming, Betty did attempt to seduce the dashing Ford, but he declined her advances due to being recently married. Fortunately, none of this did keep the duo from having a long-time friendship that would later have Glenn recommending Davis to Frank Capra for the 1961 film Pocket Full of Miracles. Betty would play Apple Annie while Glenn took on the role of Dave the Dude. The duo would meet up before this film, though, when they conducted a radio adaptation of A Stolen Life for Lux Radio Theater in 1947. They both would reprise their roles from the film. A Stolen Life was the last film that Betty would make with Warner Brothers that would make a profit upon the release, as her contract would end with the studio in 1949.
5: Bad day
0: you enjoyed this episode, Crypt Dwellers, I highly encourage you to seek out this film. It is available for rent or purchase online. I personally own a DVD copy, compliments of Warner Archive, that I purchased on oldies.com. In my next episode, I will continue my series, Double Trouble, with another 1946 motion picture, The Dark Mirror, starring Olivia de Havilland, hope you tune in. Until then, don't be a stranger. I want to know what you think. Drop your favorite little grave digger a line at cinematiccrypt@gmail.com. at gmail.com. If you have a suggestion for the show or a corpse you want me to dig up, let me know. You can also reach me on Twitter and Instagram at cinematiccrypt or reach me via postal mail Attention Movie John, and that's M O V I E J A W N P O Box 20172, Philadelphia, PA 19145. I will always write back and include a personalized epitaph. Shout out to my Canadian film pal and fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, for providing and creating a lot of the tunes you hear on this program also thanks to fellow movie genre the hollywood hunk hugo marmucci for the rad cinematic crypt logo if you can't get enough of my soothing voice you can find me on other programs that are part of the movie john podcast network such as best friends forever simply visit moviejohn.com under mj Podcasts, and while there make sure to subscribe to our quarterly print publication Available at moviejohn.com slash shop.
4: Hit the road, Jack, don't you come back no more, no more, no more, no more. Hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back no more. What you say? Hit the road.
2: I guess if you say so,
4: I'd have to pack my things and go. That's right, hit the road, Jack. And don't you come back no more, no more, no
0: more, no more. Hit the road, Jack. And
4: don't you come back.
0: It is now time to close the coffin. And now, here I leave you to rest with my latest epitaph My Tombstone quote Compliments of Kate Bosworth. Lonely people want friends. And well, creepies, even though I do like my alone time, I think it would be nice to have a specter or two as a friend. Muah. I now leave you in the hands of the very nice, very evil, very famous AEW superstar, Danhausen. Goodbye, film pals.
6: Greetings, goblins and ghouls. This
2: is Danhausen. Very nice, very evil. This concludes our trip to the graveyard. Until next descent into the Cinematic Crypt, be sure to follow your illustrious, spooky host, Batsina Belfry, or Belfry, whichever you may prefer, on Twitter at Cinematic Crypt, so that you never miss a corpse. Yes, join us next time for another trip six feet under to pry open a coffin of Hollywood's past, or be cursed. All right, Martha, if that's the way you want it, you just keep that model. But you let me tell you something. If you ever sell that to anyone else before I die, I'll haunt you into your grave.